Well, if you can take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 7 as we continue our study in the Psalms. Another Psalm of David. And I think a Psalm that will resonate with many of us here today. Psalm 7, beginning at verse 1. Listen to David's song. O Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if, there, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has every indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons and makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give, or skull, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and I will sing to the name of the Lord Most High. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go to the word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we just pray that you would take your word and use it as you please. I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that we would again respond to those truths, that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to obey those truths, and that we would take these truths to heart, and that we might live a more vibrant Christian life, and that we might be more to conform to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we have heard your word this morning, we have heard your voice, and we have been changed by it this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, if you've ever been in politics, you know that one of the greatest tools that you use against your opponent is slander. Because if you can slander them, and you don't even have to be right, you just have to have some sort of uh, message that will stick. 
And so it's a very effective tool. It's a very effective tool to, to assassinate some, someone's character, to get a group of people to change their mind about who this person is and, and ultimately bring harm to them. And certainly we have seen slander come across in many different ways in our society in the last few years. Oftentimes we are okay with big groups being slandered because after all, that doesn't touch us. Even if we're part of that group, we're okay. But have you ever been actually a victim of slander yourself? Have you ever had anyone who's gone after your reputation, who has made false accusations about you, and people have started to believe it? It's very, very hurtful. Because often false accusations and slander are things that are hard to prove. They're often done in those, those gray areas where no one can really see, right? If I punched you in the eye, you've got a black eye. You can say, look, I've got evidence. But slander is often more about motives and about character, and those are hard things to prove. And so if you've ever been slandered, you recognize how difficult it is to deal with that and how, diff- how hurtful it is and how damaging it can be. And even if others don't believe it, it's still hurtful to you and it can leave you curled up in a sobbing mess on the floor because you're upset about what's being said and your reputation has gone down and you might think, well, I'm a Christian and people are saying about this me and I'm bringing disrepute on Christ and I'm a, a disgrace to the church. And if, I, if this doesn't get straightened up, I'm going to just bring, I'm, I'm going to bring the church down. I'm going to bring Christ down. I'm going to bring my testimony down. And so we have a tendency then to think, I've got to fix this. I've got to fix this. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to get on my white horse and I'm going to put on my armor and I'm going to go be the one to fix this problem. And we want to defend ourselves. And we want to say, that's not so. And we want everybody to know that we've been falsely accused and that we've been slandered and that it hurts. However, There are those times where we're slandered and we recognize that, guess what? There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. People are believing it. We don't have a platform to refute it. Our opposition may have all of the power. They may have all of the influence. And we are left helpless to change it. Well, today, our psalm deals with exactly that. David is being slandered. David is being accused of things that he did not do. Unlike Psalm 6, where David was guilty of sin and he knew that the problems were in his life because of sin, here David's done nothing wrong. He's actually innocent of all these accusations. Yet they are still coming at him. And David knows that he can't fix this problem. He can't be the one to restore his reputation. He can't be the one 
to get his adversaries to relinquish. But in so doing, David now turns to the Lord for his defense. He turns to God for his justice. And David turns to the only one who can actually fix the problem. Instead of riding out and trying to defend himself, he simply calls on God to defend him. And when we are slandered, and when people continue to come after our reputations, we need to do what David did. We need to turn to God. We need to turn to the only one who is able to help us. And in this psalm, David sings to God. He ultimately will give us six, things, six truths that we should remember when we are slandered. Six truths that will help us to get through the slander. Six truths that will help us so that we don't, aren't overcome by our enemies. So that we are not overcome with anxiety. So that we are not overcome with grief. And if we will remember these truths when we're slandered, we will end up like David in verse 17, praising God for his righteousness, praising the God most high. And so this morning, as we go to our, through this text, I hope that you will remember these truths, that you will bring them up when you are slandered unjustly, when you know that you are innocent, and that you will take these truths and put them in your heart and recall them so that you too can praise God rather than be overwhelmed with grief. Well, this script at the beginning of this verse, it says, a Shagion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush the Benjamite. So we really don't know much about any of these terms. People have conjectured about different ones. Shagion, it sounds like you got to get your Shagion on. But it's actually... They think it might be a term that has to do with, with to mean stray or staggered. They're not sure. It could be a lamentation or an agitated song. It could be talking about the melody, how it thrills and moves around, agitates you. We're not really sure. Having said all that, David sang it to the Lord. So David, it sounds like he sang a solo. So it's a song that we're sure of. We know who David is. And then it says, concerning Cush the Benjamite. So all we have to do then is figure out who Cush the Benjamite is, is to go to our concordance in the back, look up Cush, right? Or the Benjamite. But the reality is we know nothing about him. We don't know who he is. We know he's a Benjamite. We got that from here. It says he's a Benjamite. But we don't really know who he is. It would seem that he is from the tribe of Benjamin, which means that this is the tribe of Saul, and this is the tribe that gave David trouble all through his time as king. In fact, they were the ones that continually were rebelling against him. They were the ones that accused him of being unjust and killing Saul and not being God, killing God's anointed, which David didn't do. But it would seem at least that this is probably maybe one of Saul's henchmen, one of the men who are chasing after David, 
we're not sure. But we do know he's an adversary, and we know that he's causing David trouble. And that this trouble now is being spilled out for us here in Psalm 7. So as unsatisfactory as that is, we don't want to go beyond what we know. And we just have to leave it at that. So as we start into our text then this morning, the first thing I want you to remember is that we are to remember to turn to God for deliverance. We should turn to God for deliverance. You could maybe put slash for our refuge. And really, he gives a plea here for that. David says, O Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. And so David begins this psalm with really a declaration of confidence in God. He says, I have taken refuge in you. I have put my trust, I put my faith in you. And the idea here, it's, it's almost like David has, just as he had many times taken shelter in a cave and, he, and had protection there, David now has placed his real trust, his real shelter is the Lord. His full protection, his full security comes from Yahweh himself. That's where his safety comes from. And David realizes that there's nothing Nowhere else he can go. There's nothing else he can rely on. He can't rely on his soldiers to get him out of trouble. He can't remember, rely on his cleverness. He, he doesn't trust luck or fate, as you would say it, which is hard in a providential world. But he does not rely on any of those things. He knows that ultimately the only place that he can go for security is to what? To God. He's not waiting for Saul. He's not waiting for Cush to decide, oh, you know what? What I'm doing to you, David, is a little bit difficult. He's not waiting for their repentance. His security then relies completely on God, completely on the Lord, completely on Yahweh. And David's plea is pretty straightforward. Save me. Save me. He wants to be delivered from his oppressors. The word save me literally means to give width or breadth or to give space. And David is really saying, Lord, my enemies are coming about me with these accusations and I can't breathe. I need space. I need, I need uh, security. I want to be delivered from them. They are the ones who want to kill me. They're the ones who want to literally dismember me like a lion's prey. So he realizes his only hope is in Yahweh. He says, deliver me, save me, deliver me. Deliver can be used of literally of taking a prey out of the mouth of an animal. And so you can kind of see him elaborated in verse two, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. And David uses this familiar picture of, a, of an animal being caught by a lion in a prey. This is that same word that David said, used, this word deliver. He says, I delivered a lamb from its mouth 
when it rose against me in 1 Samuel. And so David says, they're, they're, my enemy is like a lion, a lion who's grabbed, grabbed me, and he, I'm in his mouth, and he's going to kill me. He's going to destroy me. He's dragging me away to eat me. I don't know if you've ever seen a lion eat its prey. It's not pretty, right? Not to the lion, it's not yuck. But to the prey, it's not very good, right? Lions don't tend to kill you right away. They drag you away and then they start gnawing on you. And he says, he, eventually he's going to what, kill me. He's going to tear me apart. Now notice this. I want you to see this. The translators in verse 1 have said, Save me from all those who pursue me. It's literally, save me from he who pursues me. And then in verse 2, he says, or he will tear my soul like a lion. And it appears that he is referring to Cush here again, the singular. There is this one person that is in particular spearheading the opposition to David and bringing the slander against him. So David knows if God does not deliver him from the mouth of his enemies, he will be destroyed and died. Especially from Cush. And so the question has, has been, have you ever been like David? Have you ever been in that place where you were utterly helpless? Where you felt like you were in the lion's mouth? Where you felt like you couldn't get away? Where your opposition has all the power, all the influence, and they're seeking to destroy you. You know deep down that it's not your that their anger against you and their aggression against you has not been provoked by you or sin from you. Where do you turn? Upon who do you rely? Well, David is teaching us a powerful example here today. He is demonstrating clearly what we need to do, just like David did. We need to turn to the Lord of refuge. We need to seek his deliverance. We need to seek his safety. When the, we get in these desperate situations, this is where we must turn. We must turn for him to deliver us. We must not try to rescue ourselves, but turn to the one who can rescue us. As one theologian said, it's like a drowning man hanging onto a life preserver. That's what we need to do. We turn to God and we what? We cling. We cling with all of our strength because this is the only place where we can get help. Later on in Psalm 31, verse has a, David has a similar plea. In you, O Lord, I have taken what? Refuge. Let me not be ashamed in your righteousness. What? Deliver me. This is a common theme in Psalm, Psalm 71. O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me not be ashamed in your righteousness. Deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Psalm 18, Psalm 18:30. It goes on and on. This now becomes the repeated prayer of David when he is falsely accused, when he is attacked by those who want to utterly destroy him, he turns to God with that urgent plea. 
we need to learn from David. We don't need to ride in with the Calvary and change everything. We actually need to turn and cling to the Savior. He's the one who can deliver us. So remember to turn to God for deliverance. And then in verses 3 to 5, remember your innocence. Remember your innocence. David says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if if I have rewarded evil to my friends or have plundered him who without cause was an adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Now David here is not is claiming innocence. He's claiming a clear conscience. Now he's not making a statement for his life. David is not saying, I am sinless, I'm, I've never sinned, I've never done anything wrong. But he knows and he's saying in this case, in this case, the accusations that have been brought against me, he says, I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. Now, this is not the type of thing that you want to do if you are actually guilty. And it's not the type of thing that you want to do if you think you, you might be guilty. But David, in this case, knows that he is innocent and so he does this. But this can backfire. You call on God's judgment for your, your sin, God will bring it, right? So you want to be careful that you're, you are actually innocent. And scripture tells us that we have a tendency to look on ourselves more favorably than we ought. We tend to think we're more innocent and that our motives are more pure than they really are. And so we need to be careful. Well, David sets up this situation, and it's maybe hypothetical in the fact that it, it hasn't happened, but he says... He exposes himself to God's judgment and he says with really three conditional clauses here and, you, and you'll see that with, they all begin with if and actually there's a fourth one with an implied if if you just look he says this oh Lord I ha- if I have done this number one if there's injustice in my hands if I have rewarded evil to my friend and the implied if or if I have plundered him who without cause was my adversary. So he uses this, uh, these clauses here, and it's, and it's actually in the, in the form of a vow. This is a vow that David uses. He goes, O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, and he's basically saying, I swear, if I have done this, if I have injustice of my hand, if I have rewarded evil with my friend, if I've implied, if I have plundered him who was caused with, without cause was my adversary, if this is true, then verse 5. Here's the vindication. Let the enemies pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down on the ground and lay my glory on the dust. So David must be sure of his innocence in order to make this oath. 
And apparently David's enemies have brought these slanderous accusations against David. This is what they're telling everybody. This is what David has done. This is who he is. They, he's been one who has rewarded evil to his friend. In other words, instead of giving good for good, he's given evil for good. He's betrayed his friends. He's unnecessarily plundered his enemies and, and been unfair to them in battle. He's paid back good for evil. David Solomon says in Proverbs 17, 13, He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. But David knows he hasn't done any of these things. David knows that he is being falsely accused. And so he lays out his case before God. Essentially says, if I'm guilty of these things, then what? God should judge him. And we have to recognize that we have to be willing to take God's chastening if we are in sin. We have to be open to that. We recognize that God's chastening is what? Just. And David says, if this is a product of sin, then I deserve it. Then I deserve it. But David knows his only recourse here is to appeal to the final judge. He's the one who will make that judgment. He will actually say, David, you are innocent. And so we too must go to God and say, listen, I am not guilty of this. I know these are false accusations. I, I know there are some times where we might not be sure, but there are times where we're sure, right? Someone tells everyone that you're robbing a bank, that you've robbed the bank. You can be pretty sure if you robbed the bank or not, right? You know, yeah, actually, you know what? On Thursday, I was in the middle of the lake. How could I have been in Edmonton robbing a bank? Unless, right? So you know that. And so there are times where you know for sure And David says, I, I didn't do it. I, I appeal to God. He's the one who, who knows my heart. He knows I didn't do this. So David's heart is clear. He says, Lord, make this determination that I am innocent. And so when the, when the adversaries come and they accuse us, we can go to God and say, listen, I'm innocent. I know that whatever this is happening to me is not a result of sin. And we can appeal to him. We recognize that if it is sin, then we deserve it. But we can plead in God's court and say, listen, I'm innocent. I didn't do this. I have a clear conscience. And you know what? One of the greatest things that you can have when people are accusing you is a clear conscience. Right? A clear conscience. And, and my friends, you can sleep at night with a clear conscience. It doesn't matter what people say. If your conscience is clear before God, guess what? It's okay. It's okay. Because the court that counts knows. And so we need to leave it there. So David says, remember to turn to God for deliverance. Remember your innocence. 
And then he says in verses 6 to 10, remember to trust your life to the Lord. David says in verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples and vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous for the righteousness of God tries the hearts and the minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. And so David now gives himself over and trust, puts his trust in God, that God will be the one who will defend him. God is the one who is just. God will make sure that justice will come. And so he bases his argument on God's righteous character. David calls God to come and to vindicate him, to come to his aid and to help him. And again, he uses three anthropomorphic imperatives here. In other words, that's just simply words giving, giving human characteristics to God. And he says here, arise, O Lord, lift up yourself against the rage of my adversary. Arouse yourself. Three times he calls God to get up, to arouse, to come to his defense. Now notice this. David is not saying that God is asleep, that God doesn't know what's going on in David's life and David needs to arouse him. This isn't like the prophets of Baal, right? Maybe Baal's gone to another country. Maybe he's asleep. That's not what David is saying. David is simply saying, as he puts these together, is saying, God, come quickly. Come help me. Come to my rescue. And it has to be soon. Come, there's, a, there's an appointed judgment that's coming. Come down to earth and help me. Straighten out these destructive, false accusations. And so there is here a call, and we must realize that when we are being slandered, it is all right for us to call to God for Him to come quickly and to deliver us. Sometimes we think we have to wait until the eternal kingdom. But here, David is saying, come quickly, come now, come help me in the, in the immediate. And it's all right for us as we, as we put our trust in the Lord to say, Lord, protect me now. Help me now. Vindicate me in this life. Don't wait for the next. Now that can't be our full hope. We can't think that that's the only thing. But certainly David gives us an example here of a man who cried out and said, Lord, he didn't say, Lord, when you come back, when I'm in the grave and, and I'm, I'm raised again and I see you, rescue me. He says, don't arise now. Come immediately. Help me now. And so we can cry out and we can say, Lord, Help me now. Help me in this life. There's a part of us that means to recognize that God also vindicates us at his time in his place, even in this life.
And so David cries out to God immediately for immediate help. He entrusts his life to God. But David does this against the horizon that we would say a future judgment. He recognizes that also there's going to come a time where there will be full vindication in the future. He says, let the assemblies of the people encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. And so David says, let the assemblies of people encompass you. And again, as we look at Numbers 10.35, even as we turn over to Psalm 9.19, he says, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. David looks forward to a time where the nations will be brought before God and God will judge them. He says, let, he says, and over them return on high. In other words, be over top of them, judge them, rule them. The Lord judges the peoples. That's what he will do when he returns. He will judge them. He will judge with perfect judgment. And David cries out, vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. In other words, Lord, vindicate me because I am righteous. And David knows in this case that he is righteous and he can truly say, vindicate me when you come, when you judge. If you don't do it in this life, when you do come and you judge the nations, vindicate me, show that I was right. Show that because I am righteous. I was not wrong in this situation. And so David appeals to a righteous God because he says, I am righteous, and because you must reward, you must judge, you must vindicate me. He says, I am righteous, I have integrity, that is in me. I've not done these things. And so when I stand before you, vindicate me. He says in verse 9, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. He's seeking God to secure the righteous so that they are steadfast and stable. He will bring an end to the adversaries. He, want, he cries here that God would make the righteous steadfast, that he, they would make them stable. One of the most dis, destabilizing situations in life is when you are falsely accused and you're under attack. And so David is seeking stability. He says in verse 9, For the righteous God tests the hearts uh, and the minds. In other words, David is giving his life over and he says, God, you're the one who tests. You're the one who tests hearts. You're the one who tests minds. You know motives. The term heart and minds are not two separate entities in biblical anthropology, in other words, in how man is made. They are the same thing. You can see this in Genesis 6, Psalm 14, 1. This is what we call, a, I, I want to call it a Hyundai, but it's Hyundai. It's a, it's a figure of speech. 
where we have two words connected by a conjunction that express the same idea. In other words, it's speaking to the same idea. The heart expresses the core of the soul. The mind speaks of how a man thinks in his heart. So in Scripture, the heart is not the seat of emotions. It's the place where man considers, judges, intends, and thinks. The point is God tests human hearts and people who are righteous have nothing to fear. You hear that? If you are righteous, when God judges, you have what? Nothing to fear. Psalm 17, Yahweh tests, tests hearts. Yahweh cannot be fooled. The Lord cannot be fooled. He knows our hearts better than we do. And so David is giving, giving himself over and he says, Lord, my life is yours. Judge me. Read my heart. Read my mind. And then David says, I give you my life, he says, because you are my, sh- my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. So he makes an appeal here to clean conduct. And, and, and David again calls out and says that God is my what? Shield. Either my shield rests upon God or my shield is God. God is my protection. It's an impenetrable wall. Nothing can touch me that God will not protect me from if it be his will. God will save the upright in heart. And David says, this is, I give my life over because I know that because I am righteous and God is righteous that he will what? He will protect me. Now, when he talks about the upright in heart, he's not talking about those who claim to be upright in heart, right? We have lots of people who say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty upright. I'm doing right. But he's talking about those who are genuinely upright in heart. Those who are not, who don't harbor anger and hatred and bitterness. Those who don't slander, who are full of revenge and unforgiveness. He says, those are not the upright in heart. These people here are what? People of moral excellence. And really, this is the description of what every believer should be. Morally excellent, upright in heart. And so he says, God is my shield. And so David now turn, has turned to God and he has given his life and entrusted that God is the one who will judge. God is the one who will make it right. God is his protection. And so we too, when we get in these situations, must turn it over to God. We must remember to trust God with our lives, to call on him and to let him be the one who protects our lives. Well, fourthly, verses 11 to 13, Paul says, remember God's righteous judgment of the evil. Remember God's righteous judgment of the evil. We sometimes look around and we think our adversaries are getting away with it. We sometimes think, well, it's not fair. But David now declares that God will be the righteous judge. He says in Psalm 11, 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He will make arrows fiery shafts. So the question remains, how does God deal with those 
who are bent on doing evil to the upright? Well, David says, remember God's righteous judgment. We see that in, first, in the first part of verse 11. God will see to it that their judgment, that their judgment will come. It is inevitable. The judgment is inevitable. He is, a God, he is an angry God. If you look at the verse 11, he is an angry God. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Indignation means he's angry. He's, he's rageful. He's wrathful. We often don't think of God that way. When's the last time you've heard that God is a wrathful, raging God? We like to hear about, we like to emphasize that God is love. He's compassionate. He's full of grace. But it says he's angry every day. And he's angry every day because he's holy. And because there's evil. His character is such that he burns against evil. And he burns against those who promote evil and those who practice evil. Don't be fooled. You've heard that saying, right? Hate the sin, not the sinner. God sends sinners to hell. God is angry with sinners every day. Interestingly enough, God's anger at sin and those who practice evil should actually be an encouragement to the believer. That sounds strange. That's, that's, that's like a, what, a silver lining behind a black cloud. But the reality is it should bring us comfort. It confirms that wickedness does not go unnoticed by God that he's alert, he sees all evil, he will repay all evil in his time. Reminds me of Deuteronomy 32. The Lord says in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Paul takes up that same theme in Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, God never sleeps. God doesn't nod off. He's on top of everything all the time. He notices, he understands when the, what the righteous are going through at the hand of the unrighteous. Hebrews 10.30 repeats the same idea. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will what? Judge his people. The Lord will judge his people? What does that mean? It means this. That this judgment here in this verse is in terms of the righteous. So that if anything happens to them, he will bring his harsh judgment on those who are bringing the unjust persecution to his own. In other words, he judges the righteous and he looks at them and he sees and he also sees what's happening to them and he works on their behalf. It's interesting because we recognize that who was persecuting David? They were Jews. They were professing Jews who would worship Yahweh. 
They were as religious as can be. They were, they were pursuing him in religious zeal. And here Yahweh must judge between the two. He must be ju- judged between those who proclaim to be upright and David who says he's righteous and Yahweh is the only one who is able to judge between them. And David knows that he is the innocent party before God. God has righteous judgment every day. Then he says in verse 13, he will also prepare for himself deadly weapons and he will take arrows and fiery shafts. God is preparing. God is serious. God is arming himself. He's taking deadly weapons against the wicked and the unrighteous. He is preparing himself for war in this picture. And Yahweh has never lost a war. Yahweh never loses. Yahweh is sovereign, all-powerful. And so when you are being persecuted, when you are being slandered and people are coming after you, remember that God's righteous judgment of evil, they're not getting away for it. God is preparing himself to judge. And we can take hope and joy that God is not missing, that justice will not be missed, but God himself will judge the evil. Fifth thing we should remember while we're under slander is simply this, remember the foolishness of the unrighteous. Or we could really even say, remember, Remember God's plan for evil. And I want you to see this, and and, and I want you to take note of this. He says this, Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate which is just a word for a skull. So now David focuses on, on what, what happens with the, with the unrighteous. And he says, Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief, and he brings forth falsehood. And he said, The wicked are like a woman who has conceived, and, she, and here he says they conceive mischief, And now they're like travailing. They're in the midst of childbirth. Now, childbirth is not one of those things like you do sometimes with some of your shows that you watch where you go, oh, well, we'll just pause it here and we'll come back and we'll watch the end of the show, right? Once childbirth starts, there's no turning back, right? There's no turning back. You're on the road and nothing can stop it. And he says, the wicked are like this to evil. They conceive in mischief, and ultimately now they cannot help. They are giving birth. They are, the birth pangs are here. They must give birth to their evil. 
And ultimately, it brings forth falsehood. In other words, they bring false accusations. They conceive in mischief. They tried to cause harm. They caused, tried to bring you down. And they can't help it. They're like a woman who cannot stop her birth pangs. And they ultimately bring falsehood that comes forth. And so they are really, we would say, out of control. They are controlled by their sin. They are controlled by the evil. And then verses 15 and 16. You need to understand that God has designed evil to come back on the heads of those who put out evil. Those who are evil and do evil to others, God has designed it to come back on their head. As one person said, it's the boomerang effect. You throw out evil, God has designed for it to fall back on your head. And it's a fascinating reality that we must not miss. He says, it's like a man, verse 15, who dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. Maybe this man's not bright, but the idea is what? They would often dig a pit and you would hollow it out so, and you would cover it over so that an, a wild animal would come along and fall in the pit and you would capture it. But here, this man dug the pit, got it all made, and then he's the one who fell into it. In other words, he was meaning mischief for the animals, but it ended up being mischief for him. That's the way God has designed all this. When the wicked people intend evil towards you, God has designed it that the very evil that they have come after you with will be the one that falls upon their own heads. Verse 16, he he continues this analogy in verse 16. He says, his mischief will turn upon his own head. His violence will descend upon his own skull. He puts out mischief, it comes back. As one commentator said, it's like the story in the book of Esther. Remember the gallows that Haman made for Mordecai? How did that turn out for Haman, right? It ended up being his own place of execution. He set out for evil against Haman. And ultimately, it came back on him. That's how God deals with ungodly people who plot to harm his own. In the end, it comes back, what? On their own head. Remember that. Remember the evil that they're putting out will ultimately be used by God to come down in their own head. The slander that they put on you will ultimately be the slander that God will use to bring them down. But what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this information? Well, we need need to remember to praise God for his righteousness. David says, and look at verse 17. I give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of what? The Lord Most High. Again, this psalm has been exalting the righteous judgment of the Lord. It now ends with David's vow to give thanks and to praise Yahweh, the Most High. 
And it's interesting because there is a, there is a link between God's righteous judgment and our praise. You don't think of that very often. But God should be praised for his righteousness because it is his righteousness that actually makes it so that he will vindicate us and that he will judge evil and that we will ultimately be judged rightly before him. And so God's righteous judgment ultimately should motivate us to what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Because we will be vindicated. If he's righteous, we must be vindicated. If he is righteous, the evil must be punished. And so it doesn't, just like David who was slandered and attacked, we need to express great joy and cheerfulness and bringing praise to the Lord Most High for who He is. Now listen to this. Why? Because He finds confidence, His comfort and security in the righteous judgment of the Lord. The perfect righteousness of our heavenly judge means condemnation for the sinner, but comfort for the saints. The righteous judgment of God should bring about great thanksgiving in your heart because we know that thanksgiving comes from what? Knowing the character and the righteousness of God. Thanksgiving comes from knowing the character and the righteousness of God. It does not come from circumstances. It comes from him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again pray this morning that you would impress these truths on our hearts, that we would remember to turn to you to remember our innocence, to trust in you, to recognize your righteous judgment, the foolishness of those who go against you, and to praise you for your character. Pray that these truths would go deep in our heart and in those times where we face unjust accusations, that we would be like David and turn to you for our deliverance, I pray in your name. Amen.